This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics for today's show on gender equity and the innovative business leader that is leveraging people analytics to advance real organizational and societal change. My guest today sees gender equity as more than a social issue. Um, I call it a business imperative, but she explains why. And she sees it as a massive economic opportunity. She's the CEO of Pipeline, a Denver-based technology company with a goal to increase the financial performance of companies by closing the gender equity gap. Their propriety... let me say that 10 times fast, proprietary. Their proprietary SAAS platform uses artificial intelligence to assess, address, and take action against gender biases. And they do that all using people analytics, which I'm super excited to talk about. Last month, they earned the, um, the company earned an award for best decision management solution from AI Breakthrough, an independent organization that recognizes top companies, technologies, and products in the global artificial intelligence market. And the innovative force behind Behind this amazing company is Katika Roy, the CEO and founder of Pipeline. So a little about Katika, and then we're going to start our conversation. Um, Katika is really driven by a passion that we're going to talk about to eradicate economic inequality and champion the rights of refugees, women, and children. Um, she herself is the child of immigrant refugees, and she's an award-winning business leader with more than two decades of experience in technology, healthcare, and financial services. She's involved in several community and global initiatives, including as a board member of the University of San Francisco's Women in Leadership and Philanthropy, the amazing Book Trust, and Isabella Bird Community School. So she's making change happen at home, at work, in her community, and writ large. Katika is also an industry entrepreneur, thought leader, and a frequent editorial contributor and speaker. So with all that, Katika, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you for having me. So, Katika, you are at the intersection of all these things we hold dear here at Women at Work. You're doing really innovative stuff. You're leading your own company, and you're using people analytics to create real change. Um, so, well, I want to talk about Pipeline, your company, how it works and how it's built. I really want to start with you, if that's okay. Sure. What inspired you to address gender equity in this way? Probably a couple of things. Uh, one is uh, having a um, having an interesting background. I'm a former programmer, UI UX designer, so user interface, user experience design, as well as data scientist. And having the common thread of of human capital, um, I saw what might be possible with advanced technologies. So that was certainly one part of it. And then being the daughter of an immigrant and a refugee influenced me to see how I might be able to use the skills and opportunities that were given to me to make the world better. So when you talk, I've done a little research, obviously, about you, so (laughs) I can connect those dots, but help connect them for our listener. Um, Growing up as the child of a refugee, how did that really impact you? Was it about working hard or was it about um, finding a place in society or both? With both, you know, um, 
for my my dad is is the refugee. My dad and my three eldest sisters. And for the two things that I was taught by my parents were to always do your best and never give up. And I I think a lot about uh, both my parents' journeys. But to start with my um, my dad, he made the decision um, in his 30s to escape from Hungary after the fall of the 1956 revolution. And he took my uh, three eldest sisters, and they escaped in the middle of the night uh, across the border, and then they arrived to a refugee camp. So I think about that decision and that decision of never giving up, right? (laughs) And and when you're escaping your country and you're leaving everything you know behind in pursuit of a, a a better life and the tenacity and courage that that took not only to risk his life, but also the lives of his three daughters in pursuit of, of something better. Um, and, and the, you know, the rest of that, that story is that the, in, President Eisenhower sent Air Force One to bring 21 Hungarian refugees to the U.S. on Christmas Day, 1956, and my father and three sisters were part of the 21 Hungarian refugees. And so the idea that if you never give up, you don't know what's on the other side. And if you just keep on doing your best and... Um, keep uh, keep um, being persistent, uh, you will get to the other side and you just don't quite know what's waiting for you. And that couldn't be a better metaphor for the life of an entrepreneur. Um, so one of the things that I find interesting is that, you know, when we talk to entrepreneurs, they often started in business. And mm-hmm. you started as a programmer and a data scientist. How yeah. did you mobilize from being really what we say on the back end to developing an idea as a company and making it real? Two things. One was I watched my dad do it and he was an entrepreneur. And so I had some inkling of what it actually took to raise capital and start your own company. And he had done it pretty successfully. So I wasn't completely unaware of, of what, might be possible. And then the other part of it is that when I, I, the common thread throughout my career was human capital. And then I had these other skills, uh, like being a programmer and a a data scientist. But what I, I worked mostly in sales operations. So right at the front of the business. So I was very aware of revenue and margins and profitable revenue and what the market looked like and how you took information in and made uh, changes to products and services. And so having that perspective was a very different perspective on the nexus of technology and business and social issues and what might actually be possible. Tell me a little more about your work in human capital. Where did that, like, where were you working and, and, yeah, how it started Uh, and how you progressed? So I came in through the side door. Uh, (laughs) When I started my career, I was going to be a lawyer. I was going to be a litigation paralegal. This was back in the days before there was email. So we had DOS-based systems and keystrokes. I happen to be fairly good at that and at technology. And so when I decided I wasn't going to go to law school, I was hired by one of the legal research firms, legal technology research firms, Lexus Publishing, and thought, oh, well, this is interesting. And basically what I did was I was part of the sales force, but my job was to increase adoption. So they called us training consultants. My job was to increase adoption of the software within our customers. 
And so I thought, well, that's, that's kind of an interesting way to work. I think I'll go and get a master's degree. So that's what I did. And I got a master's degree in education, education, tech, educational technology. Ah, I'm trying okay. to say that. And so that is basically the marrying of the technical skills, so the programming, UI, UX design, with uh, cogni- cognition and cognitive sciences, so mm-hmm. understanding how people learn and how people take in new information. And, and that was where, uh, really where my, my career in human capital uh, truly grew uh, from there. And then where did you go? What was the step between that master's degree and starting your own company? There were a lot of years, probably <laughs> 18 years in between there. So I did probably what many people do, which is I, well, in that I went and uh, researched companies and found companies that I wanted to stay at and build my career and made a plan to uh, slowly but surely move up the corporate ladder. And I, the thing that I was particularly good at and known for in the corporate world was was uh, either starting something new or taking on a project that was risk and ter- was at risk and turning it around. And so that afforded me a fair amount of opportunities in my career. And so I also think to some extent it was like entrepreneurship. So it was like being an entrepreneur, <laughs> yeah. but within a company. So they would start a new division or they would have a new uh, position open or they would uh, – um, like I was often the first person to hold uh, different positions in companies or I'd start different projects. And, and each of those things gave me confidence in – the ability to have enough information and do enough homework, but then jump and the ledge will appear. And I think then eventually I got to the point sort of mid-career and felt like, I think I could actually jump all the way out. (laughs) (laughs) And you just said something that I just love, jump and the ledge will appear. Um, What gave you the confidence that the ledge would appear? Is that going back to... Um, the way that you learned to cope with risk from your parents? Or was that about something that you were learning as an entrepreneur? Both. So it was, I was taught that by my parents. Um, my mom has an equally uh, courageous story. She was an orphan. So if you've seen um, or if you've heard of the book or seen the movie, the uh, Guernsey, Guernsey Literary Society, Literary Potato Peel Pie Society, quite a mouthful. But in any event, <laughs> my mother was born on Guernsey, and she was one of the children that was evacuated, uh, was an orphan, and then at the age of 21 came to America. But the um, the the uh, coupling of growing up with parents who had taken risk, and, and it hadn't all worked out perfectly, but it had ultimately worked out with the uh, long skill set of being an entrepreneur in companies, I had the faith that I might not know exactly what it would look look like, but it would work out. So buoyed by this faith that you're not going to die by taking this risk, a solution will emerge and it'll probably be pretty good. And if not, you can cope with it. Is that a fair way to summarize it? It is. Yeah. Um, And empowered by a combination of your um, sophisticated tech skills and then your master's degree and your understanding of how to work with people, your in corporate life, you're moving up the corporate ladder now, and you have a headset and the skill sets that's primed you to start a company. Why gender equity? 
because I felt that I could create a solution that would make it possible in make it possible for us to achieve gender equity in our lifetime. Were you feeling the absence of it in my corporate life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think I had experiences probably common to many women in the workplace and men too of uh, feeling um, overlooked or like I had to work harder, or there were assumptions about what I wanted because I was a mom who also happened to work. And uh, having those experiences um, certainly cemented for me the, I, I, the idea that it still does exist. So when <laughs> I started in the... so And why I say that is that I was a poli-sci major undergrad, and I was an intern in D.C. in the summer of 1993, and so we were exposed to a lot of topics surrounding women's rights and um, not only the ratification of the 19th Amendment, but all of the laws that were passed since that time, um, uh, really uh, removing barriers to full economic participation of women. And when I started in the, cor- when I started in the, the corporate world, I thought, well, I don't think any of those things really apply anymore. And then I learned slowly but surely they actually do, that there really is still a gender inequity and had fought through some of that um, and experienced it and then thought, this is something common to many of us. And if I can use advanced technology to solve it, maybe there's something I can actually do. Um, Yeah. Apparently there's a lot you can do. By the way, (laughs) you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest this hour is Katika Roy, the CEO and founder of Pipeline. If you want to join in the conversation or you have a question for Katika, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So Katika, this is, I find this really intriguing because I also, I have a feeling that we were growing up in a similar era. I didn't see gender issues, certainly not the way Mm -hmm. I do now, um, until I was well into my 40s and I started to interview women in business Mm -hmm. and realized I was hearing this pattern about experiences that Mm -hmm. made me then look back on my own experiences and I could see them differently. Because I think Mm -hmm. I was part of a generation that believed this was my mother's fight and weren't Mm -hmm. things fine because in my Mm -hmm. household, things were fine. Yeah, So exactly. And, you know, you go into the workplace and you're starting to have these experiences. You're also clearly anchored in whether it's in human capital or coming out of poli sci where you have a sharper lens to look at these things. How do you make your own cognitive leap from seeing that problem to seeing that this is a powerful business opportunity for organizations? Much of my career and how... In, in addition to some of the things I talked about, had been based on research and data. So I would have a hypothesis about something, and I would, or somebody I worked with would, and I would go and research, like, what does the data actually tell us about that problem? And based on that, what should we do about it, right? So this idea of using data uh, for insights rather than support, right? right. So you, have, I, you have a belief, uh, you test that belief with what the data says. And what I, what I, and I think being a poli sci major, you're, you are exposed to economics. That's a foundational part of being a, a political science major. And so um, I just started 
to notice uh, this uh, nexus of different things happening. So women increasingly becoming the most educated cohort in the U.S., and yet they're leaving the workforce. The struggle for companies to find skilled talent as women are increasing their um, uh, education and attainment, which is key from the labor economics perspective. The, um, the talk at the highest levels of government um, whether that's Christine Lagarde at the IMF or at the United Nations or the ILO, et cetera, about um, economic opportunity for women and how that's fundamentally economic opportunity for all. And um, But, well, that's interesting. How do you actually drive that down to a company level and the company economics? And I wonder if I could do that. That was the hypothesis I started with. If, if, if I'm going to do this, it has to be more than the right thing to do. It has to be the smart thing to do because CEOs uh, are held to their responsibility is to maximize shareholder value. Mm-hmm. So if you can do good and do well, then you can solve both issues. And so as you were zeroing in on these issues. It's clear that there is a need to bring these talented women through a leaky pipeline, um, have them stay in business, develop, and move into leadership roles. How right. did you then start to formulate this into a business plan? Well, my first step was to see if I could prove the microeconomic case for gender equity. That is if you improve gender equity in your company, what impact might that have on your revenue or your financials? Uh, we looked at a number of different measures. Ultimately, revenue is where we landed. And and so your hypothesis could, would be that one would affect the other directly. That's right. As, that uh, gen, Closing the gender equity gap is a leading indicator of increasing the economic footprint of your company as measured by revenue. And... So if we could prove that case, then we could influence the leading decisions, which are around your talent, to actually move the needle on gender equity, which then ultimately moves the needle on company economics. Okay. So now you've got this idea. You're testing it out. Who are you testing it with? Who are your early partners in this? How'd you find them? So we we got access to a fair amount of data um, so we collected over a billion data points in our second study uh, when we looked at the relationship between uh, gender equity and company economics. Katika, then, let me interrupt for one second because yeah. I want to pay careful attention to the data. My people analytics part is very excited about yeah. this. But I want to start with who's the we? Who are your partners? Oh, <laughs> the we. So uh, so my co-founder, Stefan Ramsbot, who is our CTO, uh, and then we wrangled some other folks who were really smart about uh, marketing, about data science, about people, um, and we all worked together to design and execute the study. Part of why I'm asking about this is we know we see so many women out there who have fantastic ideas for new businesses, but the nitty-gritty of how you turn your idea, like you're an entrepreneur. You spend a lot of time. How do you take the idea and make it real? So it's right. wonderful to hear the story of how did you find partners? How did you sell them on the idea? Uh, well, one of the things I believe is if you're convinced of your success, other people will be convinced 
mm-hmm. of your success, right? It's not, it's not, and then you back it up with data, right? It, it's, it's a, it's a both and. So being, um, being confident in yourself, which so much of that came from this idea of always do your best, you know, mm-hmm. that they're part of what the ethos that my parents taught me was that never giving up and always doing your best. And those things are not completely separate in terms of if I was working on a really hard project at work and I thought, oh, this is just too hard or, oh, I just can't quite figure out my way around this. That idea of, uh, and at that point thinking, well, either I'll just sort of do something (laughs) or I'll give up, right? And then thinking, okay, well, I can't give up and I need to do my best allowed me to push through. So for instance, when I had to write papers or strategic plans, and I felt a sense of writer's block, I would just start with the headings. And at least then I was starting with something and I wasn't giving up. And then I was kept on pushing through. And by virtue of pushing through, it gave me the confidence to believe that I could do it. And so why, and, the, and then selling it, selling this idea uh, to my co-founder, Stefan, and the other folks that we uh, convinced to join us uh, was this belief that I I would be sex- successful, that I would be um, that I could do it, and then by virtue of that and having done a lot of homework on it, that that they would join me. It sounds like, in a way, you got fueled by your excitement about an idea, and kept afloat by your by these values and this resiliency that you were taught by your parents. So to kind of break it down, because I think you're, what you're describing is really important and a lot, and it's a stage that most people don't see. That mm-hmm. you saw like all the different stars in the constellation. And mm-hmm. you were seeing that this could all come together to make something bigger. And, mm-hmm. but, and what that one of, and if I'm hearing you right, one of your first steps was actually to articulate it, to get it down on paper so that you could yes. explain it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And th- and that's not an easy process. No, no. <laughs> and even when you do that, that's funny. Even when you do that, it doesn't. It, it makes the. It doesn't make. How do I say this? So you know, we've raised capital, and we know that a lot of the stories and the data around women raising capital and how it's tougher. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about that in a little bit. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> so, and that's true. So what I would say is um, doing your homework braces you it one gives you the my experience it gives you the confidence and belief in yourself to have others join you as well as gives you the belief in yourself when other people do not believe in you because that will also happen yes um and so uh so not to feel like uh you should be sidelined by that this is the direction we're going i understand that this is the right direction and and other people may not believe me, but this is where we're going. And you know, I, I don't. I, I'm also an entrepreneur. It's one of the things I've done throughout my career in higher ed. And the other thing that I find is that when you go through this process, it also internalizes the language so that you learn how to explain it to other people. Did you find that was the case for you too? Yes. Uh, so yes, and when you are both an entrepreneur as well as an entrepreneur, you have to pitch the same thing quite a bit and (laughs) I could probably do it in my sleep, but that's a really good thing. And then you can test the 
you know, I, I will often do that. Like, okay, so if I test telling the story this way, how does that go? And if I test telling the story this way, how does that go? And and so being willing to to continually refine uh, what that pitch is and what resonates with people, what gets the idea and credibility across quickly, that was something else that I got really comfortable with. Yeah, it's. I love hearing this part of the process because you could see, you know, it start, when it starts with the idea, um, each step of articulating it, giving it structure, and then being able to reach out to people. How mm-hmm. long was it from when you started that process of articulating the idea until you were ready to share it with other people? I thought about it uh, sort of a few years before... Uh, and then, and then I, I sort of, <laughs> my personality is like, well, let me just try it out and see what people think. Because <laughs> <And, laughs> if nothing else, it gives you, not not broadly, but more in like coffee conversations, right? You know, I wasn't posting right. about it on social media or anything like that, but more people I trusted and uh, people I would meet. And I would think, well, that's interesting. Let's just have a, let me just test this out and see what they, see what they think. And, and it's a pretty easy way uh, to get quick feedback around an idea. It's a really and... – it's a wonderful point. And also to, to share that even for the risk-averse um, – or the you welcome risk. Um, mm-hmm. You're not afraid of it. There still was a cautious, cautious first step out of the gate with people that you knew and trusted. Um, what was it like for you to get funding? How did you approach it? What was the experience? Bong. Long. <laughs> it, was long. it was long. So we, uh, so uh, we, so I mean, we were fairly structured, right? So you can you can figure out. Uh, I, I joined a female founders groups, so I was connected to other women who'd raised capital. I uh, from that and from doing research on you know Crunchbase, et cetera. I. Uh, figured out who the investors were that we wanted to pitch, who would, uh, who either you know were their impact investors or or they were an enterprise SaaS or in tech, you know, sort of different uh, flavors of that. And then uh, if there were folks that we knew who knew them, we asked for introductions or we we would apply to pitch. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a lot of that, uh, and it, it was interesting because maybe. Maybe uh, uh, on my part, I thought, well, I have 22 years of experience. I have an MBA. Uh, I can. I will certainly face headwinds as a female founder. I expect that, but I won't face as many headwinds because you know I'm older and more experienced. Right, I'm a grown up. And, <laughs> right, and that was not true, and and it was just not true. And I thought, wow. This is like, it doesn't matter. And so, and what was interesting is that I have a male co-founder. And so we, we figured out how to co-pitch in a way that assured us, uh, uh, or uh, I shouldn't say assured, but more had a higher probability of a positive outcome that is actually getting funding. And he would often do the initial pitch, and then I would uh, come in and do the, the second pitch. And we found that that actually worked most of the time. It's awesome that you figured it out, and it's kind of sad that that had to be the case. It totally is sad. And I tell people that, and they're like, really? And I'm like, yes, really. Yeah, I'm not surprised at all, Um, you know, that they had to hear his voice first in order to get them to actually listen. 
Yeah, and what was interesting is that he pitched me, and I pitched him. Ah, okay. And so he wasn't pitching pipeline per se. He was pitching me, and by and then me pitching the business. So that one too was actually what worked for us. Bravo uh, to you to funding. figuring it out, but that's <laughs> even worse. <laughs> Yeah. You know, you well, you should be able to like look at your resume. You don't need to be pitched. You, you come with some pretty yeah. phenomenal skills, um, but it did work. Um, it so did work. Yeah. I want to take a, a just a slight detour for a minute, and, we're, and then we're going to come back to how funding unfolded. Um, one of the things that's interesting here is that you know you're not only grounded in issues around advancing women in the economy and in society by virtue of your training. You're now focusing on it as the centerpiece of your business. Um, so you're clearly get increasingly well-versed in these issues. Mm-hmm. How much of the way that you are working on these things is being informed by what you're learning? Like, are you finding it's changing how you work as a businesswoman as you're learning about these factors? Like, how did you come upon this? It's kind of genius that you realized he should pitch first. We just tested it out. <laughs> <laughs> really, I, I think we 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 had. I actually don't. I don't. I, we tested it out. I don't have. We weren't incredibly scientific about the way we did it, but early on, we had an observation that when we pitched together, and and they hadn't met. Stefan first, that they resonated with Stefan faster. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, well, that's interesting. And then we had a couple of wins of him pitching first and me pitching second. And then we just deployed that. I love that uh, it's, it, it sounds like in every area of what you do, it's really evidence-based decision-making, that you're taking yeah. what you observe and then using data to see if you can confirm the insights or not. Right. Exactly. Which is then the same thing that the that the business does. Mm -hmm. But just writ large. Okay, back to funding. (laughs) So as you started to have more success with funding, how did you pace how you were fundraising and how you were building things out? Because you had to have brought the same strategy, kind of strategic thinking to it that you've been bringing to everything else. How we built the business is uh, coupled with how we uh, funded it. Yeah, the pacing of it, you know, how you pace yourself through this marathon. What were your benchmarks? What were your indicators of success that you were ready to grow out? Yeah. So we we did it maybe a little bit differently. I think for what we do, there's, there's, well, there's probably a number of different ways. There were two different ways that we felt that we could build uh, the the platform and algorithms. One was we could re- reverse engineer the data sets so we would understand the aggregate data. We could make some assumptions um, and build data sets. The other was that we could partner uh, with customers and their data and, and build it off of that. And we felt that that would actually be, well, it would take a little bit longer. It would actually, in the in the long term uh, or long run, set us up for success. And and so that's what we, what we did. Um, and we were very careful. I mean, the biggest thing in any startup is balancing risk, which is basically investment in the company mm-hmm. with managing your burn rate, so how much money you're spending month over month, and then your runway, which is how much money you have, how much money you have left to fund the business and how long that's going to get you based on how much you're burning every month. And so 
for us, a lot of the decisions that we made were around that, were how, what do we make an investment in? To where will that get us, right? Uh, and then based on that, um, what returns will we see and so on. And sort of continuing to slowly build that up. I, I, you know, as a startup, you have a lot less certainty mm-hmm. around where you're going. And so the more that you can um, set short benchmarks and rapidly test it and then course correct, the, uh, the, my experience is the better than you can, you don't get off course quite so far, right? Like if your pivots <laughs> right. are smaller <laughs> or you can avoid the really, really large pivots, right? right. Or you can at, least minimize, at least minimize the chance that they might, they might show up. So um, I want to switch gears for a minute and talk about, you know, you're tapping into how you start working with companies. Um, you know, I'm living and breathing people analytics all day, mm-hmm. and particularly at that relationship between a research organization and, um, pro- and, and organizations and companies. And mm-hmm. it, we find that there are – it's to, to make three kind of oversimplified groups. We've got the people who get it and do it, who mm-hmm. are, you know, part of the – the people really at the vanguard of people analytics, and they both have the organizational capacity and insight to realize how much they can learn and how essential it becomes. And they're mobilized. Mm-hmm. We then have companies who are interested. They go from intrigued to seriously interested, but they haven't yet begun the process. And there are a lot of barriers in the way of their being able to set up a highly effective people analytics practice. And it takes time. And then yeah. there are people that don't even understand this as a concept yet, that they're still operating on that's the way we've always done it, tradition, instinct, gut, the theories that have been applied but never demonstrated through data science. Correct. How – and in your case, you're not only really a people analytics company. Um, you are also addressing a very particular societal issue. How do you explain yeah. these two things to your potential partners? So we actually, the companies that we work with have made a public commitment to gender equity, okay. uh, either through a pledge or some other uh, display of, of that. They won an award. They've come out with a statement, something. They've done something. Uh, and that, that is a vetting process for us because in in order to work, for, for us to work with a company, they need to have some level of commitment around gender equity. If, if you don't believe it's an issue, then it's, it's probably – there's some other work that needs to be done. Right. There's pre-work that needs to get your <laughs> attitude in place, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's work that other folks – uh, we'll be happy to refer you to other folks that <laughs> do that. Um, uh, you know, and then there's the, the, peop- the companies who – uh, right. So that, so then there's, there's, that's one piece of it. And then we, uh, because uh, most of our customers have uh, cloud platforms, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, that, that's also a fairly good indicator that they're, if, interestingly enough, if you have your, comp- your employee data in the cloud, it's a good indicator that you're more forward thinking because you understand that having data in the cloud allows you to uh, leverage multiple systems collectively. Right sort of the, the bigger thinking around uh, the digital economy and the fourth industrial revolution, there, there is a piece. So if you're tied into that in the World Economic Forum and some of the thinking around that, then you ha- probably have some more sophisticated thinking about talent 
and about understanding economic opportunity and 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 different uh, pieces around around uh, around but that. There's around actually people analytics. Yeah, there's actually a lot in what you just said. So I hope you don't mind. I want to unpack it a little bit. Yeah. That because um, we see two types of bar- three types of barriers. One is yeah. that um, the concept that your people that and the use of people analytics is about more than just an HR function, that it's critical to organizational outcomes. Right. That we find that that's a, an important paradigm shift for organizations. Then we find that while really senior organizations can have great archival data, um, they may not have it in systems, like you said, in the cloud or where they can be shared. Mm-hmm. And that um, there are also organizations where if they haven't made the paradigm shift and they're not in the cloud, um, that there also tends to be kind of territorial behavior around mm-hmm. data. That, that an organization needs a culture of trust in order to embark on these processes. Are you seeing the same thing? Yes. Yes. And you and you unpacked it really, really well. <laughs> <But> yeah. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. Yes, we, we see that. I mean, we see the, those connections. Uh, the other thing that p- folks often will say to us, too, which you probably see as well, is, oh, well, our, our data sets aren't complete or we have some issues with our data. And we say, well, we have yet to meet a company that doesn't. And that's part of our implementation process is helping, is helping you to plug those holes. Uh, so that that's something else we see sort of this. Um, I, I, I don't know if you find this in people analytics, but one of the things that I find is sort of this, uh, belief, and maybe that's the sort of interested or sort of just starting the journey around people analytics, but this belief that they need this perfect data set in mm-hmm. order to get started. And my experience in data sci- science is that there is no perfect data set. <laughs> right. <That's> always, right? <laughs> right. There, there's always work you need to do to clean it. And we, you know, oftentimes the companies, you know, companies in their HR tech stack typically have at the very least systems, right? They have a core HR system and they have an applicant tracking system. That's the minimum, typically. And then they might even have more, right? With the move away from performance, annual performance reviews, they might have a new performance management system that sits outside of their core HR. I mean, there's all sorts of variations. And so you are looking at ensuring clean data uh, from those platforms as well as aligning all of those different data sets. And so one of the things, just to go back to that, that I find with maybe people that are a little bit newer on the journey is this belief that you have to have a perfect data set mm-hmm. before you can get started. And it's like, well, no, that's just part of the process. So part of what we do when we're starting a research partnership is it's not unlike any um, innovation that you bring into an organization. We start mm-hmm. by asking questions. What do we want to learn? What problems do we want to solve? Um, where can we find overlaps between the compelling questions that we want answers to and mm-hmm. where data exists that can enable us to do that in a, in a rigorous way. Mm-hmm. That's when we approach it, we're looking at a whole range of people issues within an organization. But if I'm understanding mm-hmm. pipeline, you're looking at you are looking at a whole range of issues, but they're related to the pipeline issues that are going to drive gender equity in the company. How yeah. do you um, help organizations understand what those pipeline factors are and the ways that you can work with them on it? And for our listeners, explain what some of them are. Yeah, so we, so 
similar to your approach, oftentimes when we meet with companies, we seek to understand first. So we want to better understand what they're working on, from a, particularly from a gender equity perspective, that, that helps us to understand how we'll present the platform to them. And when we look at gender equity, we look at a few different factors. Uh, there's a number of them, but one, uh, we look at things, I mean, the pay gap is talked about quite a bit, but we look at that tr- truly as a, uh, as um, the equitable pay for, for equitable mm-hmm. work, right? <laughs> so it's not, it's not just splitting it by gender, but it's truly understanding if you're in the same job, are you receiving the same pay? Right. It's uh, not just look, how much money do the men make and how much money do the women make. Yeah, because we know that that's always <laughs> just look at the percentage of men in leadership. I mean, that number is almost always going to be skewed. Right. Uh, and then, uh, I mean, you just simply look at the percentage of women in the Fortune 500 who are CEOs. Right. So the fortune the percentage of Fortune 500 CEOs is 20 better women or uh, five less than five percent and there's 24 so, uh, so, so you just sort of know that that's gonna, that number is going to be off. But we look at it uh, that we look at uh, resource control. So, how many resources directly versus indirectly do you control? Because that is an indicator of upward mobility. Uh, we look at uh, lane versus staff. So, quota carrying versus non-quota carrying employees. Um, and we actually were the first company to launch a gender equity uh, app on the Salesforce's App Exchange. And then with the express purpose of, of um, closing the gender gap in uh, sales leadership. And then, um, and then we look at glass ceiling, so the upward mobility of your female talent. It's really um, amazing to see that you're doing this at um, the data science level because we know that these are major factors that so many organizations are struggling to figure out how to make mm-hmm. change. And it's interesting that it's often – dismissed as a pipeline problem. Like, I'm working with what I've got. The problem happened before me. Well, if it was a pipeline pipeline problem, we would have achieved gender equity in those organizations where women are 50% or more of the entry level. Wouldn't we have? (laughs) So healthcare is a good example, right? So 72% of the uh, uh, entry level in uh, healthcare are women. Seventy-eight percent of the labor base are women, and roughly thirty percent of the senior leadership in healthcare are men or women. Excuse me. Right. Women. So, so that so if that's it's not a pipeline problem. Right. The leaky pipeline is very real. And, yeah. you know, this is a tool for fixing. By the way, this is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Kanika Roy. She is the amazing CEO and founder of Pipeline. Uh, if you have a question about what your company or you can do about gender bias, give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at one eight four four wharton That's 844-942-7866. So, Kanika, how long has Pipeline – what's the – the client that you have that you've been doing this with the longest? Uh, SendGrid is the customer that we've been working with the longest. And what are you using as benchmarks within the company to see how Pipeline is serving them? Yeah, and I, I you know, uh, I, I can, I, what we, I can talk at a very high level, but I wouldn't want to speak on their behalf. Of course not, uh, of course not. Because I said, you know, uh, so we, I mean, we, we look at a number of different factors. Uh, and overall, what we look at is, uh, uh, 
how each decision they make around talent is moving them towards gender equity or not. Um, so decisions about hiring and pay, performance, uh, potential and promotion. So when they're making those decisions, um, helping to inform uh, each of those decisions as, as a decision toward gender equity. Um, when you're sending in your work with these organizations, who are your partners at the organizations? Is it the board? Is it the CEO? Is it the COO? Or is it happening with the CHRO? It depends. So it depends on the company. So uh, we almost always work with the CHRO. We oftentimes, and their team, so we'll work with total rewards, which is compensation. Uh, we often work with talent acquisition. Uh, we work with HR business partners because many of our customers, like they're, we work with large enterprise customers. Uh, um, we uh, we do we do sometimes work with CEOs, but it's very that's very organization dependent. Um, and then people analytics and um, uh, systems admins. But in, especially in organizations with people analytics or a CHRO that's involved in organizational strategy, um, progress on the pipeline is creating progress on the bottom line. And we look at top line, but yes. Okay. <laughs> Only because I can't. Uh, income statements are so business model dependent, mm-hmm. and so and so I have very little control over what your cost of sales or your cost of goods sold are, and so uh, and you know which ultimately impacts your profitability, et cetera. And so what I what I can look at is your revenue and how do I impact that number, you know, without getting into all the other variables. I am excited on every level about this. You know, here we have you as this amazing role model. You're a woman with anchored in tech, broadly educated in business. You've defied so many um, kind of norms or stereotypes that can hurt women along the way. And then at the same time, you're doing all of this work to create solutions for everybody else. Um, You're also running your own business. Um, given all the work you're doing to help other businesses create environments that can be diverse and equitable, how are you doing it at Pipeline? How are you bringing the culture on home? So the number – so we're a small team. But with the number – so we're obviously always aware of that and what the split is. But the top thing that we – the top piece that we really look at is making sure that we have very diverse Slates of candidates, and not uh, really uh, pushing back on interviewing people, uh, starting the interview process. We don't always do that, but we work very hard to do that uh, uh, until we actually have a diverse slate of candidates. Yeah, that's and, and that's a critical first step. It is, and it's more so, and it's more than just having one diverse candidate or one, you know, including one woman in your candidate pool, because we know from research that. Statistically speaking, if you have only one woman in your candidate pool, she has statistically no chance of getting the job. <laughs> and so, so, so you have five candidates, you have one woman, she has zero percent chance. She doesn't have uh, twenty. And so, the uh, so we we do that uh, quite a bit, and also by virtue of the fact of what we do, you know, the gender conversations are are fairly uh, uh, consistent at Pipeline. Um, and uh, maybe some of the things that are more unconscious we end up talking about because uh, we know that to some extent we sort of live in a glass house, right? Um, we need to 
drink our own champagne and, <laughs> and people will, you know, people like Stefan and I go out to pitch. We're pitching gender equity just by virtue of us being a gender diverse. Exactly. Team. As soon and as you walk in the room. If he interrupts me, that is going, you know, it would be one thing sort of in the, <laughs> in the, right. But if that happens in our pitch, then people are keyed into that. Right. right. <laughs> so those are conversations uh, that we, that we have uh, and, and we have them ongoing. It's a, um, that it is, it is uh, something that we uh, that we work on, and, and is very important uh, to us. And um, and actually, one of the things that you one of the things we talked about, so from a diverse candidate perspective, is we actually at the very beginning, even before we were hiring, started to form relationships with universities, local universities mm-hmm. here in Colorado, and their diversity offices. Um, so, engineering, marketing, data science. Uh, so that we could, as we continue to grow, tap into diverse candidate pools that we felt that being um, that, that dealing with uh, um, diversity when you're a 100 percent company or a 200 percent company, that was too late, that we needed to be thinking about that before we even posted our first job requisition. And, and you know, so that that's also been uh, remarkably helpful as well. So you're pulling talent into your own pipeline at its earliest stages. Yeah. Um, so Katika, um, one quick question. How do you keep learning? You know so much about this. What are the ways that you're keeping yourself growing? Well, I write an almost weekly blog. Um, I had a busy summer, so it wasn't quite as consistent, but I write an almost weekly blog on the economics of gender equity. That keeps me really fresh because it's research driven. I send out a weekly newsletter uh, which is mostly about the questions that I get when I speak. That helps as well. And then I write a fair amount of contributed articles. And every, almost every morning, I'm reading uh, lots of different articles, not only about gender equity, but what other, what other CEOs are reading, what um, uh, what's being um, read in the financial markets, and all of those uh, pieces, you know, really keep me in front of what does the research say and about this particular topic? What are the economic yes. implications of that? What's the common thread of the day? And, well, Kataka, I have yes, to say, anyway. you've given us an amazing common thread to the day. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you. And if you want to check her out, go to PipelineEquity.com. You can follow her at Katika Roy. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.